محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so last week we were doing the story of Kaab ibn Malik and we had mentioned that our Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم commanded that Kaab be boycotted and Kaab was one of a group of three people who were honest enough to say Ya Rasulullah we simply did not obey the commandments we simply did not obey the commandment to go for jihad we have no excuse other than the fact that we were lazy we just did not obey and so the Prophet told them that they should be boycotted 40 days went by and then the command came as we said that they should leave their wives or their wives should leave them and go to elsewhere and so all of the wives left other than the wife of Hilal she wanted to simply uh, service him and take care of him, feed him, otherwise he would not even take care of himself and maybe even die in those 10 days because he was so grieved as we said. Ka'ab was, uh, sorry, Hilal was just sitting next to the door crying non-stop for 40 days. So the wife said at least let me take care of him so the process allowed him. Ka'ab was told why don't you ask for your wife and he said what excuse do I have? I am a young man, Hilal is an old person, what excuse would I have? So he therefore did not take advantage of this concession and he was by himself for 10 days. And he said that when I was one day, so he's narrating the hadith back, we're back to where we left off, that one day when I was in the state that Allah described me, and it's beautiful that he's referencing the Quran without actually quoting the Quran. I was in the state that Allah described me. What is the state that Allah described him in? So Allah says in the Quran that وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُوا حَتَّى إِذَا ضَاقَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ الْأَرْضُ بِمَا رَحُوبَتْ For those three who were left behind until the whole world seemed to condense on them even though it is so vast. Like the world seems to be crashing down on them, we'll say in English, right? The world seemed to come crashing down on them even though the world is such a vast place, they felt as if there's no uh, place out for them. And they realized, They realized there is no way to save yourself from Allah except by going to Allah. You cannot save yourself from Allah except through Allah. So this is the description that Allah gave of them in the Quran. And that is that the whole world appeared to collapse on them. So he said, one day when I was sitting in my state, as Allah describes me, completely depressed, and I had prayed Fajr on my rooftop. So this shows us he was so depressed towards the end. He says in the beginning, what did he try to do in the beginning? Go to the masjid, walk in the marketplace. But then after a while that became too difficult for him. So he began to just stay in his house. So difficult was it, he didn't even want to go outside. So he's just living in his house, not even going to the masjid. And of course, in this case, it is allowed because he has been told you should be boycotted. So he's not even going to the masjid. He prays Fajr on his own rooftop. That's how lonely, if you like, or difficult the situation is. And I was just sitting there worried about myself and worried about you know everything. When finally I heard somebody who had gone to the top of the Jabal al-Sila, pause here, Jabal al-Sila 
is the mountain that you see uh, when you exit the Masjid, uh, masjid the Nabawi. There's a Masjid, there's a mountain over there. So the man went up to Jabal al-Sila and he cried out with his loudest voice, Ya Ka'ab ibn Malik, Abshir. So he's giving him from a distance that he's trying to get the message to him that after Salat al-Fajr, the Prophet would have announced it. So it took 20 minutes for this man to go up to the mountain and he's now yelling out from the mountaintop that Ya Ka'ab ibn Malik, Abshir, be happy. And as soon as I heard this, I fell down in sajda, realizing there could be only one reason for happiness. Like there's no, the, the sentence is not completed. Abshir for what? No need to mention, there's only one thing that abshir. So he said, I fell down in sajda, realizing that Allah's help had come. And the, he's saying, the Prophet wasallam had announced that Allah had forgiven us after Salat al-Fajr. And the people came to congratulate us. And some people rushed out to my two companions, the other two. And a horseman came galloping to me in haste. And the man on the roof, the man on the mountain, his voice reached me first. But the one who came on the horse riding, he came to convey me in person. And I was so happy, I gifted him the clothes on my back. And that's all that I had at the time. Which means in those 50 days, he has gotten rid of all of his money, basically as much as he can, sadaqah. He said at the beginning of the qissa, he said what? That... I have more wealth than I've ever had. Now, in these 40, 50 days, the, co the, ca the cash or the coins he would have had, it's all gone. Of course, he still has his garden, he still has other things, but the coinage that he had, it's all gone. Why is it all gone? He doesn't say this, but we read in. Why is it all gone? Sadaqah, he wants to give... So he said, I had nothing to give him in my house, meaning of wealth, other than the clothes that I was wearing. So I took off my garment and of course, he's wearing the izar underneath, you know what they wear, the izar, we call it the lungi, he's wearing that. I took off my garment and gave him that as a gift. I was so happy, meaning the guy came all the way rushing from the masjid, galloping on his horse, only to give me the good news, right? And this shows us, subhanAllah, that how much genuine love existed amongst the sahaba, that when they heard that his tawbah has been accepted, Everybody goes rushing. Some go to this Sahabi, the Hilal. Others go to Kaab. Others rush up the mountaintop trying to give him news. Look at the genuine love. The genuine wanting good. I mean, literally galloping from the Masjid the Nabi all the way to his house. What is he going to get? Just he's so happy. The good news. It's not even somebody from his own tribe. It's just another person, a Sahabi. He's just galloping there. And of course, Ka'ab is so happy that you've come to give me the news. He's already heard the news. But he's ecstatic. And so he wants to gift him. Said, I had nothing to give him in my house other than the thawb I was wearing. So I took that off and I gifted him. And subhanAllah, this shows you the poverty of the Sahaba. Wallahi, if one of us were to be gifted somebody's shirt or kurta or thawb, we would be insulted. This is true. We would be insulted. Like, what do you mean? You're giving me your used shirt, right? But the Sahaba were so poor. This is the general, all of the Sahaba. They were so poor that being gifted a used thawb is a big deal. As we know, most of the Sahaba only had one garment. Even our process and typically had two garments. That's it. Two. And may Allah forgive me and forgive you. Our closets are bursting at the seams. At the amount of 
clothes that we have, right? This is the reality of all of us in our time. May Allah Azza wa forgive us. The point being to be gifted a thawb was such a big deal. So he gifted him his thawb. Then he said, I did not have any other thawb. So I had to knock on my neighbor's door and borrow a thawb from him. Borrow the, the, the garment from him to go to the Prophet Wasallam. So this literally shows us that in these 50 days, the house wealth, in, and, and this doesn't mean he sold everything, we're going to come to this in a while, he still has other possessions like gardens and whatnot, but his wealth of the house is completely gone, depleted. He doesn't even have clothes to wear anymore. So then he went to the neighbor's house and he borrowed a garment from him. And he rushed to the masjid and he said, the people began to receive me in batches. Wherever I went, they would hug me, they would thank me, congratulating me on Allah Azza wa having forgiven us and saying, Nubashiruka, glad tidings, mabruk at the uh, acceptance of Allah Azza wa repentance. And he said, when I entered the masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I saw the Prophet and all the people around him. Meaning this was a festival for all of the Sahaba. Wallahi, imagine this. What has it to do with the rest of the Sahaba that these three people, their tawbah was accepted? Think about it, right? But when you have that type of ukhuwa, when you have that type of love, when your brother has been saved, you feel you have been saved. So the whole community is rejoicing. They're celebrating a type of Eid, if you like, festival. Everybody's in the masjid. Celebrating, happy that these three have been uh, forgiven. And he said that I saw the process in the middle of the masjid. All the people were around him. And Talha ibn Ubaidillah, the famous muhajir, the, the, the Makki, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, he stood up to rush to greet me and he shook hands with me and congratulating me by Allah out of all of the muhajirun he was the only one who did this and I will never forget this gesture from Talha now subhanAllah this shows us that acts it's not as if the muhajirun did anything wrong I mean they're happy for him but you know they're not gonna none of them stood up but Talha stood up to greet him and of course the muhajirun are a are, are of course more elite and more noble in the eyes of Allah. And therefore the fact that Talha stood up, Ka'ab remembers this. And he said, I'm never going to forget as long as I live this one gesture that Talha did. SubhanAllah, one act of good, Wallahi, you will, you will change a person's heart for the rest of your life. One act of good, right? Just a smile, just a handshake, just a, 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 a word of comfort. When people have left you, when people have hurt you, somebody comes and says a word of comfort. Wallahi, and I know and you know that you know, at times of distress, you really see who your friends are from your enemies. At times of difficulty, when the person comes and gives you something that is positive, even if it's, I mean, what is it to stand up, right? What is it? Such a small gesture. But look, and by the way, when is he narrating this? He's narrating this 40 years later. He's an old man, he's blind, he's remembering. And he's now thinking, 40 years ago, Talha stood up. And wallahi, I never forgot that as long as he lived. Can you imagine, right? One gesture like this. Then he said that I greeted the Prophet wasallam, and his face became bright with joy, like the full moon. And he said, whenever the Prophet was happy, his face became like the full moon. Now this phrase, we find it in many ahadith. It's not just this hadith we have found in the hadith of Jabir, in the hadith of Ka'b. So many narrations that when the Prophet was happy, beaming, like you know we say, his face became like the full moon. And the Prophet said, Abshir ya Ka'b, that 
be happy and be given the glad tidings, the best news that you have ever heard since the day your mother gave birth to you. This is the best day of your life. Why? Because Allah has announced you are forgiven. What more can you want? Allah has announced this in the Quran. We still read it to this day, right? Allah has announced because Allah has accepted your uh, repentance. So, uh, 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 the Prophet said, excuse me, the Prophet said that be happy and rejoice for the best day ever since your mother gave birth to you. He didn't say why. Ka'ab then said, O Messenger of Allah, is this from you or from Allah? And the Prophet said, no, it is from Allah. And this really shows us over and over again that the Sahaba made a clear distinction between Rasulullah and between Allah Jalla Jalalu, right? This is really what Tawheed is all about. The greatest human being. And Kaab is saying, I want to know your forgiveness, which is great, but the real forgiveness is Allah's forgiveness, right? And remember what Kaab said, we said this last week, that Ya Rasulullah, if I wanted to, I could have convinced you. But I can't convince Allah. And I might have pleased you, but Allah would have Allah would have exposed me later on. And if I make you angry, but I'm honest with Allah, then I hope Allah might eventually forgive me. And this is what happened, right? So this really demonstrates, and this is again a very crucial point that uh, many groups in our times, as I've said over and over again, the status of the Prophet and what we do with him, and do we go to him for our needs, and do we ask him while he's alive? And Ka'ab is saying, is this from you or from Allah? Which means Ka'ab understands that something from the Prophet is great, but that's not heaven and hell. That's not heaven and hell. The ultimate owner of heaven and hell is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the one who decides, right? So he is saying, Who is this from? That I should be happy. And from you it's good, but if it's from Allah, that's what I'm waiting for. And the Prophet says, no, no, this is from Allah. Because he hasn't heard the verses yet. He's going to hear them uh, later on. And he said that when I sat in front of the Prophet sallallahu I said, Ya Rasulullah, because Allah has accepted my repentance, I will give up all of the possessions I have fi sabilillah. So which means he still has some left. What does he have left? It's the possessions that are not gold and silver now. He must have land, he must have, I mean the house he's living in, let's say. So these are things he has. So he said, because Allah has accepted my repentance, I will give up everything fi sabilillah. All of it, I'll be left with nothing. What do you think our religion says about that? Our Prophet said, keep some of your wealth with you, that is better for you. Don't give everything. Keep some of your wealth with you, that is better for you. And so Ka'ab said, very well, I shall keep my share of Khaybar. Remember Khaybar was the largest fortune that the Sahaba got, other than uh, uh, the battle of, of uh, uh, Hunayn. But of course in Hunayn, how much did the Ansar get? Nothing. The Ansar got nothing. So the Ansar got Khaybar. And Khaybar was a good amount of wealth. And so he said that, Ya Rasulullah, I will uh, give up everything, other than Khaybar. And Khaybar was a nice, good plot of land. You're getting a good income from uh, Khaybar. And so this shows us that uh, a number of benefits that don't act on raw emotion. Don't just act on a spiritual high. Think wisely. He's now... So happy, he thinks that khalas, he should get everything, left with nothing. And here we have the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ telling him, no, calm down. Keep some of your wealth for you, for your family. It is better for you. Now, if somebody were to say, we're going to talk about this even today, inshallah, in the next 30 minutes. If somebody were to say, but don't we know from our tradition that some of the Sahaba, such as Abu Bakr, they gave everything fi sabirillah. 
leaving nothing at all at home. How do we respond to this? And the response is very easy. That is why he was Abu Bakr. None of the other Sahaba, even Umar did not do that. Right? That is really a difference that we have not reached that level and it is foolish to give our entire money to fuqara and masakin and then make our wives and children fuqara and masakin. This is not what our religion tells us to do. So the Prophet said to Ka'ab, keep something for your family, give the rest fi sabilillah. And we also learn from this that when a positive thing happens to us, when something good happens to us, we should give charity to thank Allah. This is something that is established from our tradition. If you get a raise, you graduate, you have a child, of course when you have a child, it is wajib to give the, the, the hadiyah, the udhiyah, and also to give some sadaqah, uh, you know, just like five, ten dollars, they say the, the weight of the hair. By the way, somebody asked me the other day, so how do I weigh this hair? No, you don't weigh the hair. This is an expression uh, in Arabic. You don't actually take the baby's hair and then put it on a... Uh, it, there's no such thing like that. It doesn't work. It's just an expression that simply means give some small amount of charity. So our tradition tells us that whenever something good happens, what should we do? Thank Allah by giving some sadaqah. And this Kaab's incident proves that, that he knew this in his mind. It's already known to him that when a good thing happens, he wants to give everything fi sabilillah. Then Kaab said, Ya Rasulullah, Allah has saved me by telling the truth. This is what, why I was saved. Allah saved me by telling the truth. So as a part of my tawbah, I promise never to tell any lie as long as I live. Now he's so happy, he realizes that Allah saved him because he was honest. So he makes a promise. That as long as I live, I shall always tell the truth. Then he tells his son, because remember this narration is being told by, to, to his son much later on. He tells his son that, Wallahi, I don't know any Muslim whom Allah tested more with, do I have to tell the truth or lie than me? Meaning for the rest of my life, there were so many opportunities that I felt like I should tell a lie. But I remembered my promise. And so... I never said a lie until this day. He's telling his son. I haven't said a lie until this day. And I hope that Allah will save me until the day I die. Right? And this shows us, uh, he said, I never told a lie intentionally until this day. And I hope that Allah will save me for the remaining of my days. Right? And this shows us, subhanAllah, what a beautiful statement. The, uh, he's already... We don't know his exact age when he's narrating this hadith, but he died at the age of 77, 78. So, and he's already, and he became blind towards the end of his life. So we can assume this hadith is like 75, 76 years old. So he's thinking back 30, 40 years, and he just has a year left. He doesn't know that. SubhanAllah, what a humble humility is being shown. That for 40 years I haven't told the lie. May Allah protect me for the remainder of my life. What a beautiful humbleness that is shown here, right? That he's already such an old man. And there's no need for him now to, to lie. But still, there's always this humility. I don't know the future. May Allah protect me from the uh, future. Also notice that he said, I never intentionally, amdan, told a lie. And even in this, we see his humility. Maybe I said something that I thought was the truth turned out to be wrong. Right? Maybe I said something that I was intending it to be factual. So he doesn't want to accidentally lie to his son. So he says, I never intentionally told a lie. That 
I never intentionally told a lie. And even in this, we sense his humility, his caution in not saying anything that might be an unintentional lie. And Ka'ab then goes on and he says, and Allah revealed the uh, verse in the Quran that لَقَتَّابَ اللَّهُ عَنَّ النَّبِي وَالْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ لَيْتَبَعُوا فِي سَعَةِ الْعُسْرَى that, uh, that Allah has accepted the, or forgiven the, the Prophet and the Muhajireen and those who were with him. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that, uh, what is, where was I? And Ka'ab said that by Allah, wallahi Allah has never bestowed upon me a blessing greater than Islam, other than the fact that that day I did not lie to the Prophet The best blessing that I ever received after Islam was that day when I could have lied, I did not lie because if I had lied, I would have been destroyed like the hypocrites were destroyed. Because Allah described the hypocrites with the worst descriptions He ever used for anybody. This is Kaab speaking. What does Allah say? He then quotes the Quran. He recites the Quran. All of this is Surah Tawbah. And inshallah, when we finish um, the Ghazwa of Tabuk, uh, as is my habit, I want to go back to the Quran. You know, I've been doing this from the beginning. We go to Surah Ali Imran, Surah Anfal. Uh, we go to uh, various verses, Surah Al Ahzab. We did this. We also, when I want to go to Surah Tawbah, we might, we might spend an entire day just on verses from Surah Tawbah. And when we do that, I'll tell you to bring your Quran because Surah Tawbah is long. It is. More than a juz. It's the, one of the longest surahs. And it's basically 90% about tabuk. And there's so many side points here. So again, as a part of our routine in the seerah, we're going to go back to the Quran. But now we just mentioned some of these verses. So Allah says in the Quran, They shall swear to you. Who is they? The hypocrites. When you, when you come back, when you came back to Medina, they shall swear to you. What should they? What will they swear to you? That they have legitimate excuses. Just so that you may turn away from them. عنهم, meaning, so that you can move on to the next guy. Right? So Allah says, عنهم, Turn away from them. Notice it's beautiful here. The reason they want you to turn away is so that you move your attention to somebody else. And Allah says you should turn away, meaning turn your mercy, your, your good attention away from them. Turn away from them. They're not worth your attention. Then Allah says, They are filthy. They are filthy. Right? That they are filthy and uh, they shall be in the fire of hell. That as a punishment for uh, what they do. And then Allah says, Allah does not guide the fasiq people. This is Surah Tawbah verses 95 to 96. So verses 95 to 96. Notice once again, He's attributing good to Allah. By Allah, Allah never gave me anything better than Islam other than on the day He protected me from telling a lie. Notice here the difference between the Muslim and the non-Muslim. The Muslim attributes all good to Allah. And the one who doesn't believe in Allah will attribute good to himself. Okay, so even this good, he says, this is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ka'ab says that we, the three people, the three of us that, that remain behind, were the ones whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the ones who gave the excuse to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the rest of the munafiqoon, he gave them outward forgiveness and left their affair to Allah. 
He left their affair to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As for us, he told the people to leave us. And this is the reference in the Quran. Now pause here. What is he saying? He's basically explaining the Quran. The Quran verse Surah Tawbah verse 118. Surah Tawbah verse 118. This is the verse that is about the three. This is the most explicit verse about Ka'bah and his companions. Ka'bah is doing tafsir of the verse. He is saying the word khullifu is commonly interpreted as for the three who remained behind. And he said, no, that's not what it means. Khullifu here means our verdict from the Prophet was disconnected from the verdict of the munafiqun. We three were told to wait. That's khullifu. Do you understand or should I go over this? Some of you understood, some of you didn't understand. Should I go over it? So, وَعَلَى الثَّلَاثَةِ الَّذِينَ خُلِّفُوا Now if you look at even most of the Quran translations, you will find they translated as, as for the three who were left behind. And when you look at the story of Tabuk, the first thing that comes to mind, okay, the three were left behind and... The others went forward. But it says the three were left behind. Not the three who remained behind. They were cut off. That's what the verb is saying. So Kaab is correcting this misunderstanding from the very beginning. No, this doesn't mean we remain behind. Allah is referencing the three of us, our verdict was suspended. We were in limbo. That's what he's saying. As for the munafiqun, they were not in limbo. Why? Because the Prophet outwardly accepted and he left their inwards to Allah. So they're not in limbo. Right? Is that clear? So, The three upon whom no verdict was made. Maybe you can translate it like that. The three who were in suspension. That's the reference here. And then, uh, so Ka'ab said that the reference here is not our remaining behind the ghazwa. Are remaining behind, but rather the fact that the process did not make a decision in our case. That's what khulifu means in contrast to those who, uh, the, the munafiqun, who, who were outwardly, the process asked Allah to forgive them. And Allah says in the Quran, after this, we'll talk about this. After this, Allah said, don't ever ask forgiveness for them again. This was the last time, ever. After this, never was he supposed to ask forgiveness for the hypocrites. But we'll get to that when we get to the issue of the hypocrites. Okay, before we move on. This story is really one of my favorite stories from the seerah. It really it should be the, one of the favorite stories of all of us. And it's a beautiful story. And I just wanted to very quickly, in addition to some of the benefits we derived as we went along, wanted to give at least 15, 20 benefits that we can derive from the story uh, in other angles and aspects. And uh, Ka'b ibn Malik, by the way, I forgot to mention last time, he was uh, amongst the uh, two or three most famous poets of Medina, Hassan ibn Thabit, his poetry was more famous, is more famous to us because Hassan specialized in a genre of poetry that we're more comfortable or we're more happy with and that is attacking the, the, the Quraysh. We like this back and forth, right? But Ka'b ibn Malik, uh, his poetry was not of the attacking type. In Arabic it's called hija. There's, there's genres of poetry. We all know that there's different ways of doing poetry, so there's different genres. And Hassan's genre was attacking or making sarcasm of the opponent. And that's why Hassan is defending the Prophet against the Quraysh. 
Ka'ab's poetry is a different type. It's basically inciting uh, the Muslims to be more brave. So it's a different type of poetry. Be steadfast in the battlefield. And his poetry is well known. So he is amongst the same group of elite poets as Hassan ibn Thabit. But because his poetry is not of that genre, most of us haven't heard of his uh, name. Also Ka'ab ibn Malik, he was the one who on the day of Uhud, he substituted his armor for the armor of the Prophet Sallallahu If you remember, we talked about that, that when he saw the battle getting tough, so he substituted, so that people would think that he is the Prophet Sallallahu and on the day of Uhud, therefore, a lot of people of the Mushrikun thought he was the process from the distance, he was targeted, he was wounded 11 different times through spears and arrows, 11 different wounds came to him. This is Ka'b ibn Malik. And event, uh, Ka'b ibn Malik, he lived a long life. He lived throughout the period of Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali. And he participated in some of the uh, jihads. And eventually, he died in the reign of Muawiyah, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, at the age of 77. And as we know from the books of Siran, even this book, uh, even this hadith, that he became blind in his old age. Now, uh, this hadith is muttafaq alayh, Bukhari and Muslim. It's reported in Ibn Ishaq. It's reported in Al-Tabari. It's a very famous narration of, uh, of uh, Sirah. And it's interesting, Imam Bukhari puts this hadith in the chapter of the Battle of Tabuk, which is logical. But Imam Muslim places it in a totally different chapter, which is also very logical. And that is the chapter of Tawbah and the blessings of Tawbah. So this hadith is beautiful because it makes us optimistic about Tawbah, that somebody who commits a major sin, and it was a major sin for Ka'b, because it was Fardain on him to go. Direct disobeying of the Prophet is a major sin. It was a major sin for it's not a trivial matter. After all, he's been boycotted 50 days. No other Sahabi other than those two were boycotted. That's a major punishment, right? So the fact that uh, one can be forgiven after all of this, this is really the main point. Now, what are some of the benefits in addition to all that we have said? Of the benefits we derive from the story of Ka'b ibn Malik is the desirability, the permissibility of narrating the stories of the sinners and the repenters. There is a genre that's very popular, still popular, and that is we like to hear, oh, so-and-so was a great singer, and he then repented, he became a qari of the Qur'an, right? So-and-so was an actress, and she repented, she started wearing the hijab, okay? I was in Malaysia recently, and there was, uh, you know, these models of the magazine, I'm not going to mention in the masjid, but you know this magazine, the famous magazine, uh, that has pictures that are not appropriate. She was one of those ladies, and she repented, and she started wearing the hijab. So this is front page news in Malaysia. We're all happy. MashaAllah that such a lady who had such fame and such whatnot, she repented and now she is now wearing the hijab. Now the point being, some of the stricter scholars, they kind of frown on these stories. And they say, why are you quoting the stories of the sinners and the repenters? Let's stick with the Quran. Let's stick with the Sunnah. And we say, the Quran and Sunnah, nothing can compete with that. But the Quran and Sunnah allows us to occasionally add some stories of, and, and why do we like these stories? Who can tell me? Why do we like to hear the stories of so-and-so who was really bad than he was guided? It's a lesson, it's hope. What else? Something to relate to. These are people that live amongst us when we hear the modern stories, right? These are people that, we, that live amongst us, right? So it's relatable. It gives us hope. Now, some of our stricter scholars have always been like, we should just avoid this. And 
they bring a lot of valid points uh, which all can be mitigated with some simple conditions. Of them is you keep these stories in perspective. These stories are not the Quran. Well, this is the seerah, that's fine. But how about stories of modern repenters? That's not the Quran and Sunnah, right? So keep it in perspective. Don't base all of your hopes on these people. Because how many of these people, they were guided, but then not fully guided. They still have some sins, for example, right? And they are human. So the point being, the permissibility of narrating the stories of these people uh, in our times who are sinners and then they have repented there's something benefit to gain from that also from this story we learn the permissibility to narrate your achievements without boasting you narrate the good that has happened to you and you have done without boasting what is the evidence for this from the story at the beginning Ka'ab lists his CV to his son I was at Aqaba, I gave the bay'ah, I fought every single battle except for Uhud. So he's telling his son his whole CV. And there's nothing wrong with telling somebody the good that you have done, the good that Allah has blessed you, as long as your niyyah is not boasting. And therefore, that's something you have to monitor. Nobody else can monitor it. Okay? Allah says in the Quran, وَأَمَّا بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ as for the blessings Allah has given you, tell the people of those blessings. So you're allowed to tell somebody of a positive you have done. So uh, in order to encourage them, in order to give a point. So you can say that, uh, for example, that Alhamdulillah, I memorized Surah Al-Baqarah, let's say for example. If you're doing this so that he says, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah, right? Then Allah knows your niyyah and your Surah Baqarah is gone. What is, it? what is the point now? But if you're doing it, and let's say you're, you're older than the person you're talking to. You say, son, I memorize Surah Baqarah. Means if I can do it, you can do it. So now here, you flip the whole perspective around, right? You're saying something to encourage him. Or whatever the niyyah might be. As long as the niyyah is positive, you can mention the positives about you. We, we say this in uh, Kaab story. Also, we have to be careful to be factual and not exaggerate and, and have humility. We see this that when he said, I participated in all the battles, but he made an exception. Badr. He could have let it slide because, you know, it's true that he participated in all the battles. I mean, Badr wasn't quite a battle. He could have just let it slide. But here, we see his humility here that he wants to make sure that you don't put me above the place I deserve, I did not participate in uh, Badr. Well, one of the benefits we also learn, it's a little bit scary here, but no matter how noble your past, that doesn't dictate and necessarily mean your future will be noble. If you looked at Kaab's resume before Tabuk, who would have imagined that he would not obey the direct command of the Prophet right? Participating in Aqaba, what a noble thing. Of only 70 Sahaba, this is the elite of the Ansar, having accepted Islam before the Prophet migrates, right? He is the one who gives his armor to the Prophet. What an act of bravery! Take seven di or uh, 11 different you know, swords and arrows and javelins in his body. What a great Sahabi! Who would have imagined that this might happen? And subhanAllah, we have in the dua of Ibrahim enough of this warning. Ibrahim, as he's building the Kaaba, he says, Oh Allah. Make sure that my children and I never worship idols. Look at what he's scared of. He's scared of not worshiping an idol. No matter what your past is, your future, nobody knows. Should always be humble about your future. Also notice here uh, that of the benefits is that it is completely permissible to narrate one's sins to others if it is done with the right niyyah. 
Okay? We cover up the sins of other people. As for our own sins, we have the right to narrate them if there's a moral. If there's no moral, then we are bringing Allah's wrath. If we narrate them to boast, we're bringing Allah's wrath. Our Prophet said, all of my ummah shall be forgiven except those who boast of their sins. All of my ummah shall be forgiven except those who boast of their sins. When you have such little iman, and may Allah protect us, but this is so common in the ummah, so common. They'll boast, I was with so-and-so, I drank so-and-so, I did this and that, and they think there's some cool people that have done this. And this is really complete lack of iman. But suppose somebody narrates that, yes, I used to drink alcohol. Yes, I used to take cocaine. I used to, you know, sleep and around and do this and that. But then I realized this, Allah guided me. And then he's warning the people. So in this case, he's narrating his own sinning state, but the goal is to warn people away. This is jaiz, we learn it from the hadith of Ka'b, that he tells people about his sin in order that they do not fall into their, uh, these sins. Uh, we also see from this hadith, the sacrifice of the Sahaba, the obedience uh, that they had to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Imagine 10, 20, 30,000 of the Sahaba obeying the call of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, hearkening to the call of Allah and His Messenger, giving up cultivation and agriculture, walking in the July heat in the desert from Medina all the way to Tabuk. Imagine, and how many people remained behind? Three. Three people of the uh, uh, Sahaba, of course the rest were nafaqun, known for their nifaq. What is, the, what is there for the obedience rate? If we listen to Ibn Ishaq who said there's 30,000 people, 3 over 30,000, 0.01% basically, uh, percent was not obeying and they were eventually forgiven. Those types of statistics, wallahi, where you, you see now why the ummah is in the state that it's in, right? Those types of statistics, when the Prophet says, go forth, the whole ummah goes forth. From Mecca they came, from here they came, all over they came in order to go forth and fight in uh, Tabuk. And this really shows us the love and iman that the Sahaba had. We also see from this uh, incident and from the, the narration, and of course this is a constant theme of the seerah, that our Prophet ﷺ took adequate precautions. That in the case of Tabuk, because it was such a difficult journey, he did not surprise anybody. He told them exactly where they're going. He told them they'd have to prepare. He told them to make sure that they make their matters you know, arrange their matters for their family and their agriculture before they go. And this clearly shows us the reality of Tabuk, uh, uh, the reality of the difficulty of Tabuk, that it took place in July in agriculture season, and the reality of preparing fi sabilillah. It is foolish to go forth in any endeavor, whether it's a battle, whether it's anything, without any preparation, and say, Allah will take care of me. No, Allah will take care of you when you take care of yourself and put your trust in Him. And the Sahaba took care of themselves. They had the mount, they had the right, they had the money, they had the preparation. Then they put their trust in Allah. Putting your trust in Allah doesn't just mean walking on the battlefield and saying Allah will take care of me. This is foolishness, it is not tawakkul. Also, notice over here, as our Prophet said, feeling guilty is the essence of tawbah. This whole hadith, we can sense how guilty Ka'b felt. Even though he's narrating the hadith 30 years later, well, we can sense how guilty uh, Ka'b felt. Uh, and especially the phrase that he says to his son that the next day I woke up and I said I can make it. The next day I woke up, I can make it. And then I realized I would not be able to make it. Oh, how I wish 
that I had prepared and made it with them. Now notice, he is saying this 30, 40 years later, still in his heart, even though he knows, what does he know now? He knows that he's forgiven, right? Wallah, isn't this so beautiful? He knows he's forgiven, but still 40 years later, he is telling his son, how I wish I didn't have to go through that and I made it. And this shows us, this is the sign of genuine tawbah. Genuine. We commit sins. What is the sign that we have genuinely repented? We feel guilty for those sins. No matter 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line, we look back and we feel genuine regret. Why did I do that? I wish I didn't do that. Even if we know for a fact, and we cannot know for a fact, but Kaab can. Even if we know for a fact Allah has forgiven us, still you feel guilty. Why did I have to do that? I wish I didn't do that. Also realize um, uh, from this story as well, and I said this last week, but very important, again, the dangers of procrastination, delaying, being lazy. The mu'min is not lazy. And every time you feel lazy and want to postpone, remember the story of Ka'b. Every time we want to postpone something for tomorrow, remember the story of Ka'b. Because weeks went by, and he kept on saying, yeah, tomorrow, 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 plenty of time. Until finally the Prophet left, and he said, okay, khalas, today I'll go do it. Then today also he came back, nothing. Then he said, khalas, tomorrow I can catch up. And then even the second day, and then khalas is too late after that, right? So don't delay, have it done immediately. And of course, of the simplest and most profound lessons in the story of Ka'b, is the importance of telling the truth. And of course, that's a whole khutbah topic in and of itself. But one hadith to remind myself and all of you, our Prophet ﷺ said, Alaykum bisidqi. I oblige upon you, I put upon you the command of speaking the truth all the time. Because speaking the truth leads to piety. Bir. And bir leads to jannah. I command you to speak the truth the hadith is in Bukhari Muslim. I command you to speak the truth because speaking the truth is piety. And piety leads to Jannah. And a man continues to speak the truth, consciously speak the truth, until Allah Azza wa writes him as a Siddiq. And Siddiq is the highest level. And I warn you against lying because lying leads to Fujur, which is evil. And Fujur leads to Jahannam. So notice how he linked directly truthfulness to Jannah. Literally, this is our process in him. Speaking the truth gets you to Jannah. Lying gets you straight to Jahannam. And he said, I warn you against lying because lying is fujur, evil. And evil leads to Jahannam. And a person continues to lie until he is written in the eyes of Allah as a kathab, as a liar. So... And this hadith is a very important hadith. Just keep this hadith in mind. Every time we open our mouths, make sure that what we speak is the truth. And of course, we learn this from the Prophet wasallam that even when he was joking, he would speak the truth. Even when he was joking, he would speak the truth. And that is why when he told one of the Sahaba, write everything I say. So the Sahabi said, but sometimes you joke with us, Ya Rasulullah. So he held on to this tongue and he said, Uktub, speak, write. Because what, what I swear by the one in whose hands is my soul, is my ruh, nothing comes from this except the truth. Even in his jokes, our Prophet would tell the truth, and there are plenty of jokes that he told the truth, when the old lady came to him, and old lady said, make dua, Allah caused me to enter Jannah, and what did the Prophet say? Oh my aunt, don't you know that old ladies don't go to Jannah? Right? And she began to wail, well, well, and she's like, oh, you know, the, the wailing, and then the Prophet smiled and said, 
Allah will convert you into a young lady, then you will enter Jannah. So what he said is true. It's not a lie. Old ladies will not enter Jannah. Allah will turn you into a shabba, into a young lady, then you will enter Jannah. And there are other hadith as well uh, where he's joking, but even the joke is the truth. So the point being that our Prophet never, ever said a lie. Never. And this is something we know for a fact, I mean, from our own readings of the seerah all throughout this. Uh, also of the benefits of the story of Kaab is that making excuses for good deeds is the sign of hypocrisy. What did the munafiqun do? The Quran mentions at least half a dozen times. They're just making excuses. Every time they make an excuse. So making excuses for performing good deeds is not a sign of iman. It's very dangerous. When you find yourself giving a million excuses to perform a good deed, this is not a good sign. Of the things we learned from the story of Kaab is that pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will eventually make Allah please mankind about you. And pleasing mankind at the expense of Allah, you will lose both mankind and Allah. Because Ka'ab said to the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, if I wanted to, I could earn your happiness. But Allah would expose me and then you would hate me or you would يعني, have a problem with me. And this is demonstrated in a beautiful hadith in Muslim Muhammad, also in Tirmidhi and others, that our Prophet said, Man Whoever seeks the pleasure of Allah, even if it means getting the people angry at him, shall gain both the pleasure of Allah and the pleasure of the people. And whoever gains the pleasure of the people by displeasing Allah, shall never gain the pleasure of Allah, nor the pleasure of the people. It's a very beautiful hadith. Memorize this one. Because wallahi, this is such a difficult hadith. There are times when speaking the truth, standing up alone, and telling a person what needs to be told, or taking the stance that needs to be took, it's a very difficult thing. And it's so much easier to go with the flow. What will the people say? And here we have, whoever seeks the pleasure of Allah, even if it comes at the expense of the people, will eventually be beloved by Allah and the people. And whoever seeks the pleasure of the people by displeasing Allah, will neither please Allah nor the people will be pleased with him. So here we have this in the story of Kaab. He became beloved to Allah and his messenger and he became beloved. All of us love Kaab. To this day we love Kaab. And look at the munafiqun. They were despised by Allah and His Messenger, and they are despised by us today. Also we have uh, from the benefits of the story of Kaab, the importance of following righteous people at times of doubt. Look to what righteous people are doing if you're confused. Where do we get this from? The other two Sahaba. Because Kaab, when his tribesmen came back to him and said, why would you embarrass us? You're the only one of our tribe who embarrassed us. Why don't you just go and make an excuse? What did he say? Did anybody else say what I said? They said, so-and-so and so-and-so. فَذَكَرُوا لِي رَجُلَيْنِ صَالِحَيْنِ بَدْرِيَيْنِ They mentioned to me two righteous men who had participated in Badr. Notice what swayed Kaab. So at times of difficulty and doubt, turn to the people of knowledge and ilm and iman and taqwa. And see what they're doing. And then follow them. 
quality is more important than quantity. Of the benefits we learn from the story of uh, Ka'b is that it is the sunnah of our Prophet and also our sunnah that no matter what it looks like outwardly, we judge people by what they say and we leave their inner affairs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everybody knows these hypocrites are lying. Everybody knows it. The Sahaba know it because what did Kaab say? I was walking around Medina, I could only see the bunch of hypocrites. Everybody knows who they are. Because you have a resume amongst the people. Your character is well known to the people. Your, your friends, your community knows whether you are a righteous man or not. Yet when these evil people came and they made their excuse, our Prophet accepted it outwardly and he didn't open up their hearts and find out are they telling the truth or not. If this is the case of the Prophet ﷺ, how about us? We leave intentions and final judgment to Allah but the next point of benefit, yes, it is true, we leave them to, to Allah, but it is not an Islamic to have a perception of a person who has a bad reputation without verbalizing that perception. Because even in these narrations, we get the clear verdict. Our Prophet and the Sahaba knew these people are lying. You, get, you sense it yourself when you read the story. But did they say that? No. So, and this is actually very simple and wallahi, we live our lives this way. When you know somebody is a fraud, somebody is a regular liar, when you know somebody has, you know, cheated so many people out of money and whatnot, and then he comes and he gives you a million excuses about a particular issue and, and the person that he has stolen money from, you know him to be trustworthy and whatnot, whose side are you going to believe? The one who's the proven criminal or the one who has proven a track record of being a good Muslim? You see here, so there's nothing wrong in your heart, you have an opinion. But unless you're the court of law, in which case you have to say something, then you don't actually pronounce the verdict. And you leave the inner dimension to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You accept somebody at the, at the outer uh, dimension. And especially if they uh, swear by Allah, uh, there's a famous hadith in Muslim Imam Ahmad, so powerful. It is one of those few hadith we learn about Jesus Christ in our tradition that uh, it is said, our Prophet said that Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus Christ, uh, he once saw a man steal. So he said to the man, why did you steal? So the man said, wallahi, I didn't steal. So Isa said, I will believe in Allah and I will disbelieve in what my eyes saw. Meaning if you're going to mention Allah's name, let me take my statement back and leave your affair to Allah. Now what does that show? I mean, Isa saw him steal. Now of course, this is, not, this is not law. You cannot use this in a court of law, you understand? This is adab, this is not law. This is just being polite, where somebody, if he's going to mention Allah's name, so Isa said, radiallahu ta'ala, salam, he said that, I will believe in Allah, if you're going to mention Allah's name, and I'll say my eyes were wrong. Now as I said, this is something that we don't take it as a rule of law, but we take it as adab, as etiquette. That when somebody is swearing or whatnot, okay, khalas, it's alright. Let, let Allah Azza wa Jal judge. Right? So this is what we learn as well from the hadith of Ka'b. Also, uh, from the hadith of Ka'b, we learn that if you have something in your heart about your fellow brother, you should express it frankly and not leave it in your heart. And we learn this from the Prophet himself, that when Ka'b came, Firstly, Ka'ab knew he was angry because 
He smiled, the smile of an angry person. Then, what did the Prophet ﷺ ask him? Then what? There was something more. Didn't you have a camel? Didn't you have a camel? What does that show you? So the Prophet ﷺ feels in his heart, what is your excuse? And he says it. How could you have an excuse? And this shows us that when you have a tuhma, an accusation, right? When you have something in your heart, don't leave it in your heart. Because if you leave it, what happens? Festers. And you don't, you, you, you will start forming clouds and whatnot. Let it out. Look, man, I saw you do this. Or I heard this about you. You just say it. So that let the person defend himself. And how many times have we ourselves in our own lives, right? Confronted somebody with a fact only to realize the quote-unquote fact we have is only half a fact or a distorted fact. And you hear the other side. In this case, of course, the Prophet of course, he was right. Kaab didn't have the excuse. But what do we learn from this incident? Confront people with what you have. Show them the evidence, right? And then let them defend themselves. Because that's the only way you're going to have a good opinion of them after that. That either, as in Kaab's case, he'll say, I'm sorry, you're right. You know, I, I don't have an excuse. Or he will explain to you the other circumstances. Also, of the uh, benefits we, we learn from this, and of course, this is a constant throughout the seerah, is that the Prophet ﷺ is but a human. He is not God. He does not have ilm al ghaib He does not control heaven and hell. He does not forgive. It is Allah Azza wa Jal. And, and, and wallahi, anybody who reads the seerah, really cannot hold the position that the uh, extremist movements do. It's not possible. Anybody who studies the seerah directly from the sources, it is impossible. And that is why the notion of our Prophet being some type of conduit or medium to get to Allah, that we go through him in our dua, in our tawassul, the Sahaba didn't have it. Because they interacted with him. Right? When you interact with him, they did not put him on that type of semi-divine pedestal, that some of our extreme Sufi brethren or the Bereli movement, they do. This does not happen amongst the early generations. Why? Because they see the, the, the process, they're living with him. It's not possible for them to hold these types of views. And we see this in the Kaab so many times. Is this from you or from Allah? I can convince you, I cannot convince Allah. You see a clear distinction, right? Of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. Also of the benefits we gain from the story of Kaab is that eloquence can be very dangerous. That eloquence and good speech can turn good into evil and evil into good. And there are so many evidences for this, not just what Ka'ab said, but our Prophet some hadith is in Bukhari, Inna min al-bayani la Some speech is almost like magic. It's a hadith in Bukhari. Some eloquent speech is almost like magic. What does this mean? It means just like magic can make things appear and disappear, turn things upside down. Similarly, speech can do the same thing almost. It can turn black into white and white into black. It can make the good appear evil. It can make the evil appear good. And Kaab says this, if I wanted to, I could do this. And our Prophet himself also has that hadith in Bukhari as well. That you come to me with your arguments. You come to me with your disputes. So two people are arguing about property. You come to me with your disputes. 
And perhaps some of you are more persuasive in arguing your case than the other one is. So I find myself towards this person, but he knows that he is lying. So let that person who's lying realize that if I give the verdict to him, let him realize that what I'm giving to him is actually a piece of Jahannam. Meaning, what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obviously knows, but, but you might convince me, even the Prophet is saying this by the way, you might convince me, but you know that that land doesn't belong to you, let's say. And you twist and turn, and you make me think that it belongs to you. And therefore, I'll hand it over to you, but realize if you're lying, what I'm handing you is actually the fire of hell. Right? But what does the hadith show? That speech can be very persuasive. Right? And wallahi, it's so true when you look at uh, what's happening in the world today. You know, how each group is justifying what it is doing. Each group. Well, I'm not meaning any one group here. How the extremists amongst the Muslims, how Israel, how this country and its foreign policy. Yani it's so easy to manipulate minds of the people. Every group. That they do this, they do that, they selectively quote, and you're like, if, you, you know, if you're not knowledgeable, you start following that line of thought. And that's exactly what our Prophet is telling us. Also of the benefits that we uh, learn from the story is that being harsh is sometimes necessary. And again, I've brought this up many times in the seerah of the Prophet that the image that we have of the Prophet uh, that he always forgave, this image is, is good, but it's not true. And when it's not true, then it's going to be harmful in the long run. You cannot be a leader. You cannot run a civilization. You cannot have a country or a government where everything is always forgiven. There has to be the balance. There has to be. And anybody who says otherwise is not in politics. And that's why, as I said, the religion that preaches forgiveness has never followed it in its own history. Because you cannot. You understand, I've said this many times before. The religion that preaches turning the other cheek is the last civilization to ever turn the other cheek. Okay, this is the reality because you cannot live like this. And our Prophet demonstrated the ultimate reality which is the general rule is kindness and forgiveness. But sometimes you have to take a stand. And he takes the stand here. That was very difficult for Kaab. And especially put yourself in his shoes. He didn't know what's going to happen. He didn't know how many days. He didn't know it would be years. And that uncertainty. And then, you know, everybody abandoning you. Everybody. I mean, you become like a ghost in the whole city. Your own wife is leaving you now. Your best friend and cousin doesn't even look at you in the face. And we, it's, wallahi, you think about it, you really get emotional. If somebody were to do that to you, if one person does it to you, it hurts you. Imagine if all of humanity. But that was their lesson. And of the benefits of Kaab. Those lessons, every pain, every suffering, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses it to cleanse us of our sins. And if we have the right attitude, then insha'Allah ta'ala, every pain and suffering will come to our advantage on the day of judgment. And so every time something happens that's painful, have a positive attitude and think of the story of Ka'b. Of the benefits of the story of Ka'b as well, is that uh, it is of the etiquettes of the Quran and Sunnah and the, of the etiquettes of good manners, that we indicate activities that are 
better not mentioned explicitly, we indicate them in implied wording. So for example, when the wives of the three Sahaba were basically told not to come close to them, so explicit language was not used. The Prophet ﷺ said to the wife of Hilal, make sure he doesn't come close to you. Now, obviously the meaning is not make sure he doesn't come within one foot of you. It's very clear what the meaning is. But there's no need to be explicit when the situation does not call for it. And therefore, this is of the etiquette of the Muslim. And it's of the etiquette of the Qur'an. Allah says in the Qur'an that when one of you comes from the restroom, Allah doesn't say what you did in the restroom. Right? Allah says in the Qur'an, when you touch women, لا النساء, And it's not touching women. It's understood what is the reference here. So even the Qur'an and Sunnah, they teach us this uh, etiquette or adab. Now, if the situation is called for, then yes, you are explicit. And we have cases in the Quran and Sunnah, uh, especially in the Sunnah, where the process was extremely explicit. But that's when the case calls for it. Otherwise, the general rule, let him not come close to you. That's what he said, right, to Hilal. And the, 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 the point is given. Of the benefits um, uh, that we gain from the story of Kaab is that the general rule of Allah is that victory comes at the darkest hour. Victory comes at the most lowest point of desperation. If you wait to that point, then inshallah victory will come. Because Ka'ab himself says that it was as if, as Allah describes in the Quran, 50 days have gone by now, right? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, accepted the repentance, just like when you feel you cannot take it anymore. And so, the mu'min is always patient and realizes that the victory is tomorrow. It is around the corner. There are also some fiqh benefits from the story of Ka'b. Some very interesting fiqh benefits. Very quickly, we'll go over it. Of the fiqh benefits from the story of Ka'b, number one, the permissibility of non-Muslims entering Mecca and Medina for a legitimate reason. And this is in contrast to popular opinion. Most of us, we believe that non-Muslims can never enter Mecca and Medina. This is not true. The majority opinion, and the opinion that has been acted upon for most of Islam's history, except now in the modern era, and even now in the modern era it happens, but they don't tell it's happening. Uh, when I was in Medina, I got accepted in 1995. Uh, they had German engineers to design the umbrellas of the Haram. Because those, those umbrellas are feats of engineering. They have won prizes. It's amazing, really. It's amazing. And I mean, sadly, we don't have the technology. So I remember seeing with my own eyes, you know, German engineers walking around, you know, uh, in the haram. Uh, and just seeing, I mean, they have to. What are you going to do? And we have this notion that no non-Muslim can ever enter Mecca and Medina. This is wrong. And we learn it from the story of Kaab. What incident in the story of Kaab? The Nabati. The Nabati. The Nabatean, if you like, he was a Christian. And he's buying and selling. And he's the Ghassanid. He has a letter from the Ghassanid. So in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, right, there is this Christian buying and selling in the Suq of Medina. And therefore, another fiqh benefit, you can buy and sell from people of other faiths. This is common knowledge. Nobody ever says otherwise. You can buy and sell from people of other faiths. And of the fiqh benefits as well uh, that we gain from the story of Kaab, the permissibility of entering a semi-private property as long as one is sure that the owner of this property would not mind him entering such an area. And of course, the reference here is to Kaab's cousin's garden. That what did he say? I jumped over the wall. And it is now in our current homes, this is not 
common, but many of you have homes back home, you have memories of childhood uh, and other places of uh, there, there was in many Muslim lands, there still is, let's say a, a lawn or an opening or a front room and the door would not be locked. And friends and relatives can come in anytime to this front room, but they know that they don't go behind the curtain, let's say, right? And there are timings that are well known that, okay, now you just come in. And still to this day, there are societies like this. Sadly, this, this culture is dying out, but there are still societies like this that they have a majlis am, let's say, right? And I know of some cultures uh, that, you know, after Salat al-Asr to Maghrib, it is well known that the verandas open, let's say. And you just, if you want to walk over to somebody's house, you just literally walk in and there will be tea and there will be people there. And you don't have to announce your visit. You don't have to call beforehand. You just come and walk in. But it's understood this is the open. I see smiles and smirks and childhood memories coming back, right? So uh, you can resurrect these childhood memories if you want. I'll come to your house, no problem. You know, just, just have the biscuits and shy, no problem. We'll come over, inshallah. Uh, but my point is that this is basically that thing, that there are areas that are semi-private. And his garden is one of them. And Kaab's cousin knows and allows Kaab to come into the garden. So Kaab doesn't knock on the door. So if somebody says, how could he have done this? We say, because it is understood. This is not the inner house. This is a place Kaab is accustomed to come to. His cousin knows he's gonna, he comes in this manner and his cousin is not going to mind. So this is something that we also gain from uh, the story of Kaab. Also of the fiqh benefits of the story of Kaab, and subhanAllah, I wanted to do another two pages, but we just haven't even finished the story of Kaab. Of the fiqh benefits of the story of Kaab is the sajdat al-shukr. The sajdat al-shukr. The sajdat al-shukr is not explicitly mentioned in a verbal hadith of the Prophet there's no such hadith, when something good happens to you, fall down in sajda. That type of hadith doesn't exist. But the concept of sajda to shukr is mentioned in the Quran and in the Sunnah. It mentioned in, in, uh, about uh, Sulaiman uh, And here we have the story of Kaab, that he's on his rooftop, as soon as he hears the good news, what does he do? Falls into sajda. And therefore this shows us that it is sunnah, and we say it is sunnah. Even though the Prophet didn't command, but we learn it from the seerah. It is sunnah, when something good happens to you, you fall down in sajda. And that sajda does not need wudu. Because it's not salah. That sajda does not need wudu. You fall into sajda in any state that you're in. Because this is the sajda to shukr. Do you have to say Allahu Akbar or not? Minor difference of opinion. Safer thing is just to say Allahu Akbar and fall into uh, sajda. And of course you have to fall in the direction of the qibla. But you don't have to have wudu uh, when you uh, fall into the sajda. So we should also revive this habit. Every time a good news happens to us, we should immediately uh, fall into uh, sajda. And I remember um, uh, one of our teachers and one of the scholars of the haram of, of Medina. Uh, he was doing his PhD from the University of Medina's defense dissertation. And the audience was jam-packed because he's the, uh, one of the famous sheikhs of the Haram. Uh, and uh, he was awarded his PhD with the highest honor, like Sharaf al-Ula, which is like highest honor. And in front of everybody, there's a thousand people in the audience. He immediately stood up 
and he fell down in sajda. I said, Allahu Akbar, and he fell into sajda. I remember so clearly that that was not something we were doing at the time, Wallahi, which is so sad, but subhanAllah, he, you know, he, he was so happy he fell into sajda in front of yani, everybody over there. It's something that we should also revive now, sajda al shukr. Of the uh, benefits from the story of Kaab is that it is permissible to shout out good news to the whole community. Good news is not like bad news. Good news is public. Oh Kaab, Allah has accepted your repentance. This type of good news, it is permissible. We have the man screaming from the mountaintops. And of the fiqh benefits we derive from the story of Kaab, is that it is permissible to stand up and greet somebody for a legitimate reason, as long as it is not a habitual act. And we learn this from? From? Talha. Talha ibn Ubaidillah, he stood up to greet him. And some of our brothers are very strict in this regard because they're overly literalist and they say, I will never stand up for anybody because our Prophet said, and the hadith is authentic, whoever loves that people stand up for him, let him be prepared to go to the fire of hell. And this shows us how dangerous a little bit of knowledge is. I say a little bit of knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. You read one hadith and you think, khalas, you know everything. Yes, that hadith is authentic, but so is this hadith. So is the hadith of Bukhari, that the Prophet was in his house when his daughter came in and he stood up to greet her. He's coming back after a long time. He's so happy to see her. He stands up to go and hug her. And so many other narrations uh, that when Sa'ad was coming after the battle of uh, 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 the battle of the Banu Quraidah. Uh, the Prophet said, "Qumu ila Sayyidikum, stand up to greet your leader." So we have so many references of standing up. So where are we allowed to stand up? Where are we not allowed to stand up? Uh, in fact, Shokani others have written booklets about this. You're uh, you're not allowed to stand up when the person has made it a culture or a habit to stand up. Now, in cases in our country where you are forced to stand up by law, such as in a court of law, so we are forced to, we stand up hating it in our hearts that this is not something that our religion encourages, but it is not going to give us any sin because now we're being forced. Because if you don't, you're going to be thrown into jail for contempt. So that's... As well, if there's a, a haraj when you're taking your ceremony or something, as well in this case, right? So we realize that this is a type of pressure uh, and, and, and being, being forced to, but it's not something that we should do voluntarily for a person who takes it a habit to be done in his presence. However, occasional, occasionally we're allowed to. So you haven't seen somebody for a long time. Now you see him, you can stand up and greet him. He's coming back from a journey. Stand up and greet him. This is something that is totally halal. And we learned this from the incident of Talha bin Ubaidullah. I had two more pages of moving on to the battle of Tabuk. Other instances, but subhanAllah, we have finished time. It is nine o'clock. And uh, the battle of Tabuk is the final battle of the process. And the fact of the matter is that there's so many incidents in here. And so, as you know, it is my point to um, not go at a quick pace. I want to do everything in as much detail as possible, so I don't regret we spent two entire lessons on the story of Kaab, and inshallah we will stay with the story of Tabuk at least three more weeks, maybe even four more weeks, and then we have a day of just tafsir of Surah Tawbah, just tafsir of Surah Tawbah, so we will be doing Tabuk for quite a while. Uh, any questions inshallah before we break for Salat Al-Isha, yes?
we stand up and greet that person. But the hadith reflects on the person who we are standing up for. He likes it. He loves people to stand up for. And that's the sinning part. It's not for us to stand up for that person, right? So again, there there is another aspect that uh, Dr. Bashar is bringing up and that is that the hadith says whoever loves that people stand up for him. So the punishment goes to the one who loves the standing up. Uh, and this is a valid point. At the same time we have to be careful not to make it a habit for a particular person because our Prophet did not like that the Sahaba stand up for him and he forbade them to do so. Anas ibn Malik says, and the hadith is in Shamal al-Tirmidhi, that we would never stand up when the Prophet entered the room because we knew that he disliked that from us. And uh, one time the Prophet was sitting down and all of the Sahaba were standing and he said, why are you doing this? You are imitating the practices of the Romans and Persians. They stand up in the presence of their rulers. And this is true that in those days, if their king was there, sitting down, they would all be standing up. So he said, don't do this, you're about to imitate the practices of the Romans and the Persians. So you are correct that the sin is upon the one that wants and craves it. We also have to be careful, we don't make it a habit and routine for a particular individual. And Allah knows best. Yes? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We will get to this issue of Afallahu an kalima adintalahum. We will get to this issue that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said uh, that Allah has forgiven you. Why did you uh, allow them to go by? Um, but in a nutshell, it is because the hypocrites had a track record and the Prophet in this particular case, everybody knows they are lying. And so the the requirement was like why didn't you basically get proof for them or whatnot uh, but Allah says Afallahu Ank before Allah Azza wa Jalla very mildly chastises before even he does this Allah says you are forgiven Afallahu Anka Lima Adintalahum right but we'll get back to this ayah when we do the tafsir. There was a sister in the back. Go ahead, yes. A person is speaking without knowledge, is that lying? Uh, so our Prophet said, Kafa bil and It is sufficient for a person to lie if he tattletales, if he spreads every gossip he hears. Everything you hear, you spread it on, then this is a type of lying. So you should verify, especially when you hear something about another person. And you shouldn't just move on what you heard, you should verify. And even more important, you shouldn't be talking about other people anyway. None of us should be talking about other people. That should not be the purpose of our conversation. So yes, it is possible to be considered lying if you just simply continue to narrate everything you hear. Okay? Yes, Dr. Good. Who? Suleiman? Uh, I'm not thinking of what, no incidents coming to me, but maybe if you remember what incident you're talking about. I'll have to go back to the exact story and see what it is. Nothing's coming to me right now. If 
Final question before we guess. They didn't, the other two Sahabas, they did not narrate it in the first person, so we only know about it from this story. We do not know their inner thoughts, but the same thing happened. They were forgiven because Allah says, وَعَلَى thalatha. So all three of them were forgiven, inshaAllah. Uh, final question, yes, go ahead. The issue of the chaining, um, I was trying not to get into that now because according to some scholars, it appears that these stories are mixed up with other incidents. So for example, uh, when uh, the Banu Qurayla were told by the Sahabi that, what do you think the Prophet will say? And he made a motion with his hand that he's going to execute you, right? So apparently some, there is an opinion out there and, and maybe we'll talk about this in detail. You know, realize my seerah, mashallah, alhamdulillah is very academic, but I don't go to that level where I talk about narrations that are not beneficial. So what I'm trying to say is one opinion is that those stories seem to be mixed up with the other incident. Another opinion is that, no, that happened twice, that two people were, two incidents of people chaining up. And I'm still debating, do we want to go down that route of going into these ikhtilafat or not? Allah knows best. We'll see. Be patient, inshallah. We'll see. Uh, inshallah, with this we conclude for uh, this seerah. Inshallah, I will see you for next uh, next week, inshallah. Ta'ala.